Hello. Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a place where Brookings scholars discuss ideas about and solutions for the most pressing public policy challenges. I'm Fred Dews. We've all heard about congressional pork barrel spending, but did you know that presidents do it too? Brookings fellow John Hudak has written the book on it, and he sat down with me today to talk about his new book, Presidential Pork. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Before we go to your book, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to be at Brookings. Sure. Well, uh, as total background, I grew up in Connecticut. Uh, I'm a proud Husky, a UConn alum, and I, uh, after college, I went to graduate school at Vanderbilt, where I earned my PhD, uh, mostly studying American politics, though studying Latin American politics as well. And a lot of what I focused on was uh, bureaucracy, presidential power, and the policies that surround them. And so. After finishing up graduate school, I was uh, lucky enough to get an offer from Brookings to come here and do a lot of the same research that I had been working on for several years and uh, to uh, put that research into action. And you're also the, uh, the editor of the FixGov blog with the Center for Effective Public Management. That's right. We started the Center for Effective Public Management uh, late last year and with it launched a new blog, which... Uh, we're hoping uh, so far it's been pretty uh, successful, and we're hoping that it it's successful in getting people to do what exactly the the blog sounds like to fix government, to fix some of the problems, big and small, that we have. Great. Let's move on to your book. It's titled "Presidential Pork: White House Influence Over the Distribution of Federal Grants." Now, presidential pork, pork barrel spending, isn't that what Congress does? Our beloved Congress, and not the president. Sure. Well, Congress does it uh, historically. It's done it, and and it still does it here and there, the, though less since earmark bans have been instituted in Congress. But historically, this is the traditional behavior we think of from members of Congress, and really we've come to expect from members of Congress for them to bring home the bacon, to bring pork barrel spending back to their states and to their districts and help their constituents out in any way they can. And it's something that members of Congress really pride themselves on. And you even write in the book, behavior that is viewed as wholly routine or even part of the job description for a member of Congress is seen as improper, rare, or scandalous for a president. Now, why is that? When presidents get engaged in federal spending, it's it often looks beneath the office. When we think of our president, we think of them dealing with the macro economy. We think mm -hmm. of presidents dealing with foreign policy and uh, negotiating treaties and uh, dealing with free trade and things like that. What we don't think of our presidents as doing is getting engaged in the nitty-gritty of daily politics and daily administration. And so part of what presidential pork does is it pulls the curtain back and it shows that presidents and their appointees can actually get engaged in uh, what some people think is the pettiness of day-to-day -day mm -hmm. politics in the same way that a congressperson from the 3rd District of Kentucky can as well. So break it down... What kind of spending does the president have influence over? Because it's not all government spending, right? Yeah, that's right. So there are a vast array of types of spending in in the U.S. system, and it's a, it's a bit complex. But there are uh, to to simplify it, there are some areas of spending where Congress has extraordinary power. Those include formula grants. A lot of transportation funds are determined according to formulas that are designed mm -hmm. in congressional committees. Uh, block grants uh, function in much of the same way. Block grants uh, are often used or, or most publicly used for housing programs, some education programs. 
But beyond that, there are discretionary grants. These are grants that the administration, that federal agencies are able to determine how the money is spent, where it is sent, who receives it, within certain bounds, of course. But that gives the administration a tremendous amount of power. And then beyond those grants, which are the uh, the focus of presidential pork, presidents have control over contracts, too. And, okay. and it ends up becoming a, a really important part of presidential power is the, the ability to spend. And do you have a, a rough estimate of the the amount of money per year we're talking about here? So um, on average, in a year, just for discretionary grants, excluding contracts, uh, we're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of $100 billion. So it's not a, a petty amount of money. And, uh, and those are doled out through hundreds of thousands of individual allocations. I want to get into some more specifics about the nuts and bolts here. But first, I wanted to go into an example. You have some examples. Sure. In the study, and one of the ones that really struck out to me because it relates so much to presidential politics that you talk about is the National Park Service and uh, California and Pennsylvania. So you, you write that California has eight of the nation's 58 national parks and a whole bunch of federally protected areas, huge population. Pennsylvania has no national parks and only 12 um, or fewer federally protected areas than, than California and a much smaller population. Yet... Uh, in your study, in the 12-year period, the Park Service allocated more than 200% more grants to Pennsylvania than to California. So what's going on there? So what the numbers suggest in, in, uh, with the National Park Service example is that something is happening within the National Park Service that um, funding is not delivered to states with more people, states with more federally protected sites. Something else is going on there. Now, there are a few explanations for this. Uh, one is that Pennsylvania just had more need. Uh, they perhaps had some unique situations in which their federally protected sites had uh, substantial costs in this 12-year period, and the ones in California did not. Uh, another example could be that there is a uh, more congressional power in Pennsylvania than there was in California. Now, uh, that on its face doesn't actually hold up. Right. Both states have some pretty powerful Congress people, some pretty powerful senators. Uh, during the period I researched, uh, California had the Speaker of the House. Um, so, so that's not entirely a, a good explanation. Uh, one other explanation could be that for much of my study, for all of my study really, Pennsylvania was a swing state and mm -hmm. California never was. And those dollars pouring into Pennsylvania are in the interest of any president. And the money going to California is pretty much a wash. Democrats are going to win California. Republicans are going to lose California, at least in the contemporary politics we have. And so I thought it was a, a good example of how there might be a few explanations for why this money is spent. But it's hard to discount the um, idea that Pennsylvania is a swing state and it's very important to any president. Right. So you talk about swing states, and I know in the book you talk about core states, and I think you call them lost states. Mm -hmm. And that's part of your overall study design. So let's get really wonky here for sure. a second. And if you can walk me through, uh, how, how do you study this phenomenon, and how do you account for other kinds of variables about why federal grants would go to this place or that place? Sure. So as you mentioned, when I'm looking at this 
presidential hypothesis, this idea that election-driven presidents are manipulating funds for their own advantage. I divide states into three groups. So swing states are states that have been decided in the previous presidential election by 10 percentage points or less. Now that seems like a large margin, but it tends to pass the smell test. If you look at the states right. that are swing states, most of them are the ones we know well, Ohio, Florida, Virginia, states like that. Then there are core states, that is states decided by more than 10% that voted in favor of the incumbent president. So currently states like Vermont and Massachusetts right. and Connecticut, California are core states. And then there are lost cause states. Those are the states that voted against the president. So for President Obama, Utah and Oklahoma, those are lost cause states. Those mm -hmm. are states that Democrats not going to win. And so put those together. Uh, collect uh, millions of uh, data points on federal spending uh, over the course of the period of the study and uh, put those together with, uh, with variables that control for competing explanations. And, and for uh, a project like presidential pork, dealing with pork barrel spending, earmarking, things like that, the natural alternative um, explanation is Congress, that right. Congress has this power. And so collecting variables on congressional leadership, uh, seniority, committee power, electoral um, uh, uh, risk for members, all of the traditional variables that we see allowing members of Congress to really uh, reap the benefits of spending. And then, of course, there are state-level factors. Uh, one of the explanations for why a state receives a lot of federal funding is that it has need, that there are economic and social and demographic uh, uh, reasons why a state might get more. So for for instance, spending that goes to help elderly, predominantly right. elderly people, you're going to see Florida get a bump in that. And that might not be because Florida is a swing state. It might be because of the demographics of that state. Uh, states that want manufacturing money, well, Michigan's probably going to do well with that. And, and so will a couple of the other Rust Belt states. Is it because they're swing states? Maybe a little bit, but it's probably because of the the industry that exists mm -hmm. in those states. And so controlling for those things is important because then I can control for all of those factors. And if these swing state variables still pop up as important, as statistically significant, I have a pretty uh, good level of confidence that something else is happening there and that something else is presidential electoral interests. Okay. Uh, what about federal grants that went to disaster-affected states like New York after 9-11 or the Gulf Coast states after Hurricane Katrina. How do you deal with that? Sure. So those are some very interesting data points. And I control for them in the study by, by putting in variables that, that denote whether they're what I call disaster states. And exactly what you said, uh, New York State after September 11th and Louisiana and Mississippi um, after Hurricane Katrina hit. I use the three years following uh, each of those events because uh, tremendous amounts of money poured into it. In advance of the study, I assumed that that would be the case, that those states would do well. And then when I collected the data and I looked at it, uh, the numbers were profound. So uh, in Louisiana and Mississippi, for instance, Louisiana in particular, um, from 2005 to 2006, Louisiana's uh, level of federal funding doubled. And then from 2006 to 2007, it doubled again. Those are extreme events that have to be controlled for in any study, and uh, doing so was sufficient to tease out that, uh, that those events and still allow all of the other data and, and all of the other statistical modeling to move sort of without it to, to understand exactly what was going on. 
And did you also look at the kinds of grants or the kinds of federal organizations that would give, that could give grants? Sure. So one of the chapters in the book looks at the structure of federal agencies. So federal agencies function in very, very different ways from one to another. And we have some good research on uh, differences in those agencies, what they, uh, how they work, how they're staffed, how they are organized, and how that might either help or hurt presidential power. So mm -hmm. we have agencies that are very close to the White House, not meaning they're just a couple of blocks down Pennsylvania Avenue, but there are a lot of appointees there. They don't have too many rules that buffer presidential control. Um, in those agencies, uh, you would expect that presidential power is its strongest. And, and the book bears that out. In other agencies that Congress designs to sort of limit presidential power, those uh, being uh, uh, commissions, p agencies with commission structures like the FCC, the Federal right. Commun Communications Commission, these are agencies where the appointees don't necessarily serve at will. The president can't just simply fire them. They have fixed terms. They have staggered terms. They have requirements for balancing the number of members from each party who serve on that. In those agencies, the, the data show there's very little presidential influence going on. And it reinforces this idea that it's not a spurious relationship between uh, swing states and or the level of electoral competitiveness and the amount of money they're getting. If, if uh, every agency was acting in the same way, despite these power buffers, mm -hmm. you might question the results. But the results suggest where the president's powerful, this kind of thing happens. Presidential pork happens. Where the president is weak, it doesn't happen. So given all these factors that you control for, and, and I don't know if I can use the term anymore, ceteris paribus, sure, all things sure. being equal, you've isolated the, the effects of presidential influence. Can you estimate what that is? How, how do you describe the actual end result of, of this phenomenon? Sure. So um, uh, all else equal, uh, a swing state can expect to receive uh, receive about 7 percent, uh, 7 to 8 percent more in grant dollars than a non-swing state. Now, that seems like uh, not much money. But for the average size state, we're talking about something on the average of $60 million a year more. Mm -hmm. Um, just by virtue of being a swing state. Now, uh, that that's huge. Um, is someone who is a, a grant recipient, part of Presidential Pork was funded by a National Science Foundation grant. Uh, those dollars matter. Those dollars matter, matter to researchers. They matter to people who are in nonprofits. They matter for states trying to balance their books. I know in the in the depth of the uh, financial crisis and the the recession, there were a lot of states who wouldn't have minded an extra extra sixty million dollars to help right. balance their books, and that's in an average size state. In a larger state, a state like Ohio or Florida, those numbers begin to get much larger, and uh, it, and they can matter they can matter quite a bit. And it's important to understand that those. Uh, Presidential pork has some real effect on on society. It has real effects on society in the same way that congressional pork does. So, what are some of those uh, effects electorally? I mean, does it work? So, um, presidential pork doesn't uh, look at whether it works. So, okay. I start from the idea that uh, this presidential behavior will be motivated motivated by a president who assumes that it does or thinks okay. it might. And I think there's a lot of campaign spending that does that. Do mailers, do TV ads, do radio ads necessarily work? 
you know, we have some evidence that some of it works. We have some evidence that it absolutely doesn't work, but campaigns keep doing it. For the president and for his administration, he needs to give this money out every year. He mm -hmm. has no choice. Choice. He's legally required to spend this money. So he may as well spend it on a way that might help him. So as I said, presidential pork doesn't look at the outcome of this spending, but there is some, some other work out there, um, some uh, work by um, Andrew Reeves and Doug Kritzer who, who have looked at this uh, in, in different ways, but uh, their work suggests that there are some electoral effects um, on uh, the use of presidential pork. And, and I think it's hard to say that, for instance, someone's going to vote for a Democrat instead of a Republican because their local firehouse got a new fire truck. But I think it's important to say that if you bring some pretty substantial grant money to a local employer that funds a lot of people, uh, that they're going to be grateful. And if the president is there or a cabinet secretary is there to do a ribbon cutting ceremony, mm -hmm. you can bet there might be a couple of hundred people in that plant who think about their vote when they go into that ballot box, uh, into the voting booth, um, and they think, you know, maybe I wouldn't have a job if it wasn't for that grant. Sure. And and I think it can have some effects. And, and not to belabor this uh, answer anymore, but the example I like to say is if a little bit of pork barrel spending would have changed the minds of 600 voters in Florida <laughs> in 2000, I think Al Gore wow. would be a much happier man. Yes, that is, that is true. Um, well, let's move from the whether it works to then how it works. So I have this image in my mind of it's 2011, 2012, President Obama is in the White House with Secretary of Health and Human Services, Kathleen Sebelius. And he says, you know, Secretary Sebelius, I want you to give that grant money to Ohio State University or Penn State University. And then she goes out and does it. I mean, how does the president actually do this? So I can... Uh... I'm sure there are conversations that presidents have with appointees about who some good recipients would be. Um, I'm sure uh, I, I can be sure just for a president keeping his hands clean, he doesn't call someone in and say, let's send the money to the swing states. But uh, what happens is, in the, the administration, and I found evidence of this in my interviews with people um, as I was writing the book, was that there is a, a real knowledge of what the president wants. Uh, all the way down into the civil service, but particularly among political appointees. Political appointees tend to be savvy about politics. They understand what's going on in the political world, and they understand which states are swing states. So the president doesn't even need to tell Kathleen Sebelius what states he wants money to go to. She has a pretty good idea of what the president's needs are, mm -hmm. and she serves at his pleasure, and he can fire her in a pinch. And so conveying the president's interest throughout a broad bureaucracy seems like a very complicated process. But when you take a step back and realize that more than 3,000 individuals uh, serve at the pleasure of the president, that there are appointees in every almost every office in the federal government, then you understand that it might not be that hard to translate those presidential electoral interests into policy outcomes. Let's look at it from I'm an average citizen's point of view. Uh, a lot of people would, would look at congressional earmarks and criticize that as wasteful, possibly undemocratic. Uh, we think of the famous bridge to nowhere example. Should we look at this and be critical of the practice for the president or more generally? I think it really depends on your perspective. I think there are people who have legitimate arguments um, against pork barrel politics, against earmarking. Uh, I, I 
like to say that, uh, you know, everyone hates pork unless it's their pork, right. unless it's the money coming back to their state or district. And so is the average Ohioan going to object to presidential pork? I doubt it. They're doing quite a bit better as a result of being a swing state. But if uh, for the people who are on the losing end of it, yeah, there, there's probably a concern. Um, but the alternatives are tougher. Uh, the alternatives are that all of this is decided by um, a very professional civil service. Now, professional civil service is the very nice term for what politicians usually call nameless, faceless, unelected bureaucrats in right. Washington. And so uh, there's this constant tension when we're discussing these types of issues between whether we want politicians to engage in this, which people sometimes want, sometimes don't want, or those nameless, faceless bureaucrats engaging in it. And so at the end of the day, someone is going to complain about federal fund allocations regardless of the scheme behind those allocations. But uh, here, I think we have a president who is, from a percentage perspective, just slightly moving the needle, just slightly making some adjustments that, adjustments that, that boost uh, his electoral chances. And I think the public generally expects some politics to be involved in their public policy. Mm -hmm. Now, if the president was shifting all of them, if all of the grant money in the United States was going to Florida, Ohio, and Virginia, that would be considered scandalous. But I think we see a, a little bit of modest amount of politics it is perfectly okay with the American public. Now, this isn't something that President Obama invented. I mean, other presidents have done this. How far back in time uh, does your research take us? Sure. So um, uh, President Obama surely didn't um, invent this. In fact, uh, the book suggests he's quite bad at it. Um, <laughs> he, he, he doesn't do this well at all. And, and some people would consider that a virtue, and I'm sure some people would consider that a vice. I personally consider it a vice. Um, I think any president who has the power to do it should do it. Um, my data bring us back to the um, first term of President Clinton. President Clinton did this. President Bush did this. President Obama, as I said, didn't do it too well. We also have some anecdotal evidence and other research projects that have suggested that uh, Ronald Reagan did this, that Richard Nixon did this, that LBJ certainly did this. Um, there is evidence um, that uh, Franklin Roosevelt did this in, uh, in the 30s and 40s and 50s as uh, federal spending was ramping up during the war and after the war, uh, you know, pork was happening and that um, President Roosevelt was surely sending some New Deal money to states that he needed help in. And so uh, this is a practice that I'm sure presidents find very tempting. Uh, it's a little easier now that the federal budget is as large as it is. Mm -hmm. If we go back into the 1800s when the federal government didn't involve itself too much in public policy at the state level, there just weren't that many opportunities to do it. But since the New Deal, since – well, since really the, the 19 teens, um, there's a greater opportunity for presidents to do it. And, and now with the growth of uh, not just budgets but the number of political appointees, uh, presidents don't just have uh, the motive but they, they have the means and opportunity to do it too. So back to President Obama, I think um, you, you have a chapter in the book about the 2009 – Stimulus legislation. So that was a big opportunity for President Obama to to influence the distribution of some large new portion of federal funds. And you said that uh, that he's quite bad at it. Was he 
bad at that, or is there something else going on there? So the the stimulus is unique, and in the book, I separate the stimulus data out for for a couple of important reasons. First, uh, it is uh, very unique. It, it's it's money that was allocated only once, um, and it was certainly not going to be renewed. The stimulus bill was hard to pass in the first place, and and we could never pass one now, and so. Because of the unique nature of that appropriation, it was important to, to control it out. In addition to that, it really did bloat the budgets of a lot of federal agencies. And, and bloat is a pejorative term, but uh, it, it's not to say it wasn't necessary, but it, it, was, it put agencies in a very unique position. So I stripped all that money out and analyzed it separately. And what the data suggests is that presidential pork wasn't happening. And there's a couple of explanations for why this might be the case. First, the most of the money went out in the first two years of the president's uh, term when electoral interests are not as salient. That would make sense. Uh, second, President Obama came into office after eight years of a Republican president. Most of the appointees were brand new. There were a few holdovers from the previous administration, but in general, it was a brand new set of leaders throughout the agencies who require a little bit of a learning curve like all of us do in all of our jobs. And so uh, that creates perhaps an inability, a, a, a greater difficulty in really getting pork barrel politics going. But I argue in the book that there might be another reason for this, and that is maybe the president was being driven by his electoral interests, but it, the, it, during the depths of the recession, those electoral interests changed. He wasn't concerned about how happy swing states are going to be um, relative to, to core states or non-swing states. What he was interested in was saving the economy. Mm -hmm. He knew that all of the grant money uh, sent to Ohio and Florida wouldn't make up for an economy that four years later was just as bad as the day he took office. So what did the president do, it appears? Uh, first off, he helped some of his friends in Congress make sure that they were well taken care of, which I assume happened as part of the negotiation for the bill. But next, he put that money to work. He sent it to areas that needed help. And uh, essentially, he administered the stimulus in exactly the way it was supposed to, knowing that it would help the economy, and it did. Um, there's a great book by Michael Gr Mike Grunwald called The New New Deal that suggests mm -hmm. just how much it did help. And at the end of the day, the economy was in much better shape when he was running for re-election, and, and he won. I can assure you if unemployment was still over 10 percent and growth was either minimal or negative in 2012, uh, we would be uh, talking about President Romney right now and not President Obama. Speaking of friends in Congress uh, and looking ahead, now that this phenomenon is going to be much better known because of your book, uh, do you think Congress will will pay more attention to it? Does Congress even care that the president can do this? So, so that's what's interesting here. Um, I, I write in the book about how presidential pork is really a choice by Congress. Um, they have banned earmarking in, in Congress. Presidential pork grows entirely, almost entirely, out of the discretionary authority delegated by Congress to the executive branch. And so they should. They should be pretty angry about this. They shouldn't see it as a scandal. They should see it as a personal failing. But they won't because earmarks, especially to Republicans, especially to Tea Party Republicans, are still seen as anathema. And, and, and that's a problem. Uh, this is Congress's role to spend, and it's Congress's role to dole money out. 
And if they refuse to do it, if they refuse to engage in this type of behavior, the president's going to do it for them. And uh, there's a, a really interesting uh, a debate that I, I talk about in the book uh, that happens on the Senate floor. And in, uh, Senator Inhofe from Oklahoma, who's one of the most conservative senators that we have in Congress, he stands up and he says, if we ban earmarking, and this is a man who's no fan of earmarking, right. if we ban earmarking, all of that power goes to the White House and to the Obama administration. And so here's a man who would pass any Tea Party test out there who's saying, we need to do earmarking. This is our job. We can't abuse it, but we need to do it or someone else will. And that someone else is always the president. So will Congress be angry by this? Certainly. Will they do anything about it? Absolutely not. <laughs> so now the book is published and we want to make sure that everybody in Congress gets a chance to, to read it and hear this podcast. Uh, but what's next? What are you working on now? So I'm working on a few different projects right now. Uh, one of the things that drives the research in this book and my research in general is that I like to look at how law is implemented by governments and by bureaucracies. And so I'm looking at a couple of projects on implementation right now, uh, one on gun control laws, which are at the state level, a really tricky, in some cases, very new type of uh, law to be administered. And out west, I'm looking at implementation of marijuana legalization, very much the same, a, a really tall order for governments to start implementing brand new laws. Mm -hmm. And uh, over the next few years, I'm also going to start looking at how our parties are behaving, how they're being built, how they're unfolding, and I'm going to be at the CPAC conference. Uh, the to, Conservative Political yeah, Action the Committee? Conservative Political Action Committee conference down the, down the road, actually, in Maryland. And I'm going to sort of get an idea of what's going on within the Republican Party and then have the same opportunity to look at what's going on in the, de in the Democratic Party to understand implementation and to understand governance, particularly in this day and age, it's important to understand what's motivating the parties. And in some cases, there are a lot of good things motivating the parties and in some both parties. And in some cases, there are some bad things. Most Americans, I think, right now feel that their government is failing them. Mm -hmm. uh, their Congress is failing them. Their parties aren't representing them. And they're not really getting to the job of governance which is ironic. I mean, most people ignore, think administration and governance is boring, but I think most Americans are fed up by the lack of it. You know, you, you, you don't know what you have until you've lost it. And I think that's how a lot of Americans feel. So I'm talking a lot about challenges to administration. And on the FixGo blog, all of us are talking about what's really lacking in terms of good government and good governance. And I think to to understand what's moving that, we have to first look at how the parties are being built, how they're being run, how they're being managed, and what their rank and file are like. And so I'm hoping that um, perhaps the next big project is peeking inside political parties and, and seeing uh, what's causing what we're getting out on the other end. Well, John, thank you very much for your time today. This has been really interesting. Great. Thanks for having me. To learn more, visit brookings.edu slash presidential pork. And don't forget to subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes.